Minister, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted at the honour. Uh, I've been asked by the Contemporary Music Centre, by EVE, and by the International Music uh, Information Centre's organisation to kick off this morning. My task is not to uh, is to not, not to make any particular points. I think we we have a wonderful day of international speakers before us, and I I think the the, the role of a keynote speaker, particularly somebody with a, a brief period of time to begin, 15 minutes, and I'll stick to it, um, is to in a way open up and out our ability to listen and to be present uh, during the day to the international speakers who are actually going to lead the conversation, lead the discourse and lead the debate throughout this uh, important day. Uh, I want to begin and end <coughs> with listening and I will make some quotations several times from our Nobel laureate poet Seamus Heaney to hold my ideas together. Heaney wrote, was music once a proof of God's existence? As long as it admits things beyond measure, that supposition stands. Um, I heard the story recently of a little boy who came home from school and told his mother excitedly that he had learned how to play a gold flute with a, with a green top. Further investigation revealed uh, that this, this was a tin whistle. <laughs> Perhaps it was the same little boy who went up to a musician after his performance and said, that must be very hard to play because it's very hard to listen to. <laughs> um, at any rate, both stories have to stand in line with the one where an innocent but curious music follower asked a world-famous classical music virtuoso, uh, do you read music or are you gifted? <laughs> I didn't actually make that up. In fact, one of my friends from the Irish Chamber also asked that once. Uh, backstage after. Um, all of these stories carry something of the magic of music, of its mystery, uh, of its humour, and of its unquestionable power, not least its power to heal. Your presence at this gathering gives us heart in a time of transitions, mediations, flowings, voicings, birthings, and rebirthings. In these times of rapid digital change, a central concern is how we might contribute to the local, global dynamic. I call this dynamic global. Globality to me is a kind of listening. How can we resonate with our various locations in such a way as to strike a resonance in the whole earth? Is it not a fact that what we share is this common question? What is the tenor of our cry, of our quest, within this groundswell of music that envelops us all like a seamless sonic cloud of unknowing? Why do we wish to function as beacons of light, points of entry, safe harbours for those whom music calls. In Ireland, our listening to the Irish traditional arts of music and dance, alongside those of the other classical music and dance expressions of our times, seems to invite us to mediate the duality of the, of the ear and the eye, where the ear listens to the eye's power and the eye observes the mystery of pure sound. These flows between orality and literacy are global flows. The integration of one with the other is a global challenge. The invention and reinvention of the riverbanks of all our structures and institutions is a call, a challenge we all see. For Heaney, there is something here of the poetic and the practical. He writes in his essay, Frontier of Writing, quote, I wanted to affirm that within 
our individual selves, we can reconcile two orders of knowledge, which we might call the poetic and the practical. To affirm also that each form of knowledge redresses the other, and that the frontier between them is there for the process. Let me explore briefly that liminal point between the poetic and the practical where I am here suggesting music information centres live. I want to imagine here these centres as embassies, embassies of sound, and of course, subsequently to view this convocation this morning as a gathering of ambassadors of sound. And in order to explore that space, I want you to come with me on a journey a journey to a new republic, uh, the Republic of Conscience, as Seamus Heaney calls it, in the poem of the same <coughs> title. In a recent article in the Irish Times, marking the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Seamus Heaney tells how in 1985 he was asked to contribute something to mark that year's United Nations Day. Despite his best efforts, he says he found himself speechless before the case histories of prisoners of conscience detailing censorship, harassment, incarceration and torture and he wrote to say he would be unable to oblige. In his own words, this removal of the sense of obligation shortened the creative odds. Once the weight of the commission lifted, conditions were less earnest, less duty bound. Anxiety about measuring up to the grim evidence disappeared, replaced by a mood that was both apt and absolved, more susceptible to the spirit of play. Almost immediately I thought of an exercise I had set my writing students in Harvard the previous semester. I'd asked them to imagine and describe a country that might stand as an allegory for some emotion or state of mind. So I now set myself the same exercise. Make up a country called conscience. I took it that conscience would be a republic, a silent, solitary place where a person would find it hard to avoid self-awareness and self-examination. This made me think of Orkney. I remember the silence the first time I landed there when I got off the small propeller plane and started walking across the grass to a little arrivals hut. I heard the cry of a curlew, and as soon as that image came to me, I was up and away, able to proceed with a fiction that felt workable yet unconstrained, a made-up thing that might be hung in the scale as a counterweight to the given actuality of the world. And here's the poem from the Republic of Conscience. When I landed in the Republic of Conscience, it was so noiseless when the engine stopped, I could hear a curlew high above the runway. At immigration, the Kirk was an old man who produced a wallet from his homespun coat and showed me a photograph of my grandfather. The woman in customs asked me to declare the words of our traditional cures and charms to heal dumbness and avert the evil eye. No porter, no interpreter, no taxi. You carried what you had to, and very soon your symptoms of creeping privilege disappeared. Fog is a dreaded omen there, but lightning spells universal good, and parents hang swaddled infants in trees during thunderstorms. Salt is their precious metal, and seashells are held to the ear during births and funerals. The base of all inks and pigments is seawater. Their sacred symbol is a stylized boat, the sail is an ear, the mast a sloping pen, the hull a mouth shape, the tequil an open eye. At their inauguration, public leaders must swear to uphold unwritten law and weep to atone for their presumption to hold office, and to affirm their faith that all life sprang from salt in tears, which the sky god wept after he dreamt his solitude was endless. 
I came back from that frugal republic with my two arms the one length, the custom woman having insisted my allowance was myself. The old man rose, gazed into my face and said that was official recognition that I was now a dual citizen. He therefore desired me when I got home to consider myself a representative and to speak on their behalf in my own tongue. Their embassies, he said, were everywhere, but operated independently and no ambassador would ever be relieved. It's at this moment that the tongue, that poetics in the widest sense, has been granted the right to govern, has been credited with an authority of its own. All of this as presented to us by Heaney in his essay entitled The Government of the Tongue, in the collection of essays of the same title. And yet he's reading the word government, be it that of a republic or a state, in terms of the inherent authority or intelligence of poetics. He at the same time reminds us of a governance as a process of containment. Thus the phrase, govern your tongue, sets up the potential conflict of opposites between reeling in and letting go, between the comforting governance of predictability and the wild excitement of anarchy, or put another way, between research and search, or indeed between the practical and the poetic. <clears throat> in order to link all of this up with our own experience here this morning, we might imagine uh, autonomous states of intelligence, each with their own government and systems of government. The government of the tongue of poetry, the government of the eye of arts, the government of the ear of music, the government of the body of dance. And when these autonomous states exchange confidence, we rise into song, theatre, opera, ritual, in a federal states of play governed by a convocation of voices. Ours, then, is a republic of listening, and we are ambassadors of sound. Their embassies, he said, were everywhere, but operated independently, and no ambassador would ever be relieved. Our task is less a career than a calling. Your homework after your return to your embassies following this gathering will be to imagine that republic of sound that we hold the keys to in our music information centres and similar organisations, so many of which in Ireland have gathered here today and honoured this calling with their presence. For example, in the republic of listening, silence is revered. All voices are equally heard. The sounds of nature are held in high esteem and citizens are called listeners. Their sacred symbol is a stylized bow, the sail is an ear. Citizens communicate by singing, and all motion is through dance. The House of Parliament is termed the auditorium, and all civil bills are ritually chanted. In the capital city, called the Sculpta, the Latin word for listen, all bus conductors are taken to be expert at choral direction. And separate buses carry sopranos, altars, tenors, and basses. Bus routes are worked out by musical score, and rush hour is a total <coughs> fugue. Special buses are held for Shannon singers in the Irish version of this imagined state, whose destinations invariably is on lower. Now, that is an in joke for our visitors, and would require an entirely separate <coughs> convocation to investigate. We will not go there. I leave you to imagine your own, uh, uh, your own ideal republic of listening and how you would continue to think of your music information centre or similar organisation in ambassadorial terms. 
It all allows us to move freely between the poetics of imagining and the practicalities of the necessary mundane. But this gathering here is a true celebration for us all, not least for the host institution, the Contemporary Music Centre here in Temple Bar in Dublin. Uh, the Minister has already remarked on the singular, strong, consistent voice of its director, Evo Kelly, along with her team of true warriors that she has gathered around her. All of that has called us here, and indeed has called me here personally. Such a calling opens us out to a world of like-minded people. It connects our place with your place, and in so doing, it creates a new shared global space of human dialogue and heartfelt listening. Beyond this, there's even more. You increase our circle of friends and allow us to hopefully extend yours in a community of common cause and call. <coughs> Let me end with a story and with a poem. The story is from ancient Ireland and tells how the Irish hero Fionn McCool was debating with his warriors as to what the finest music in the world might be. His son Oshin thought it might be the cuckoo calling from the highest tree. Another, Oscar, thought it was the ring of a spear on a shield. Others thought of the belling of a stag across water, <coughs> the baying of dogs in the distance, the song of the lark, the laugh of friendship, or the whisper of a loved one. They're all good sounds, said Fionn. But tell us, they said, what do you think? The music of what happens, said the great hero. That is the finest music in the world. Such a music of course, is almost by definition a music we never would have known to listen for. And some of that music of what happens and our openness to it throughout the day will be a hallmark and a key to what the experience of this gathering will be for each and all of us, both today and afterwards, when we reflect on it. Uh, for Heaney's first poem in his collection, Seeing Things, that a definition of music that we never would have known to listen for uh, is in a poem entitled The Rain Stick. And this is the synesthetic sound we see in our imaginings. Indeed, the rain stick, and you remember the rain stick is that instrument that has gripped and cactus seeds in it that you turn upside down and the seeds fall down through it, making a sound almost like a rain. Um, indeed, it may also be one of the quintessential sounds of healing, and as such is a fitting sound to mark the opening of this gathering, the rain stick. Up end the rain stick, <clears throat> and what happens next is a music you never would have known to listen for. In a cactus stalk, downpour, sluice rush, spillage and backwash come flowing through. You stand there like a pipe being played by water. You shake it again lightly, and diminuendo runs through all its scales, like a gutter stropping, trickling. And now here comes a sprinkle of drops out of the freshened leaves, then subtly little wet soft grass and daisies, then glitter drizzle, almost breaths of air. Up end the stick again. What happens next is undiminished. For having happened once, twice, ten, a thousand times before, who cares if all the music that transpires is the fall of grit or dry seeds to a cactus? You are like a rich man entering heaven through the ear of a raindrop. <coughs> Listen now again. Thank you very much.